0: who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Being a new social worker, clinician, or therapist can be intimidating when There's people coming to you for their therapy and looking to you for help. I know when I graduated with my master's, I had all of this education behind me. I have so many classes and yet I still didn't know where to start. I wasn't very confident in my skills in how do I actually guide this person through the therapeutic process what does that really look like in real life? So I was trying to organize all of my notes from grad school, trying to get all of my textbooks, and it was just a hot mess. Right out of grad school, you are expected to provide mental health services for new patients. Your employer wants you to create a care plan And they expect you to have professional-sounding documentation. I mean, you have your master's, right? That's an expectation after grad school. But sometimes these aren't really covered in grad school. I don't know about you, but I never took a documentation class. This was all learned in the field. And eventually, I did learn it. But it took me a long time. When I first started, I was just all in my head. Where do I even start? Can I do this? Who am I to help this person? I don't really remember them covering this in grad school. And how am I supposed to professionally document what I'm doing? Or even worse, you don't even apply for the jobs that you're qualified for because you're too intimidated. So I was there too and it took me years of trial and error to figure all of this out. And even with an amazing supervisor, it was still a struggle. So this is the way that it has been going in social work until now. Things are about to change because it should not take you years to learn how to guide a client through the therapeutic process. So this is why I teamed up with my colleague, Leslie. So we have taken what we have learned and condensed it into six hours for you. We cover all of the things that may not have been taught in grad school. Maybe you weren't paying attention or maybe you just need a refresher. It's taken from our perspectives as community mental health and medical social work experts. So in the Clinical Essentials for Future Therapists, we cover all of the things that you need to know to take your clients from beginning to end through the therapeutic process. We start with how to complete an initial assessment and what do you cover in your initial assessment. We next go into professional documentation. What are you supposed to be including in your notes? And how do you word the interventions that you just used? The therapy modalities and how to find yours. How to use the cognitive model in therapy sessions for maximum impact. Next, we do cover therapeutic skill sets for powerful therapy sessions in case you get stuck, or in case you just need to dig a little bit deeper in with your client. And lastly, termination. Terminating with your client in a healthy and efficient way. All of this is covered in our virtual course and coaching hybrid. It's pre-recorded, so you can watch it whenever you can. We know that you are a busy student, busy professional. There's a lot going on. So we pre-recorded it for you so that you can watch it on your own time. And in addition, the best part is that we also include live Zoom calls that you can talk with Leslie and I, ask your questions, and see a role play of the therapy modalities and a role play of the things that are covered in the module so that you don't just know the information, but you have seen the information actually put into progress. It just allows for a more personal and unique experience so that by the end of the course, you feel more confident and you know at least where to start with your clients and you feel like you have the tools that you need to really guide them through an effective therapeutic process. So this is for you if you are a new graduate entering a therapeutic role, if you are a professional who may be new to one-on-one clinical therapeutic settings, maybe you're pursuing a career change from macro to a clinical setting and you just need a refresher. This is also good for clinicians who are already working one-on-one with clients but you want to learn other forms of the therapeutic applications. This is also for you if you are a clinician who wants to connect, network and get more support from other social workers in the field. If this sounds like something that would be helpful for you, see the show notes for the link to register. Registration is open September 20th. I hope to see you there. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back, my friend. Welcome to season two. I am so excited that you are here with me. We have some amazing guests coming up and we are kicking it off with week one episode one with the NISW New York State chapter with Samantha Fletcher. She is so amazing. I'm so excited for this interview. I learned so much from her and I know that you will too. We talk about their anti-racism initiative and mainly what it means to do the work when you hear that social work is racist and that we need to do the work, what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? You are gonna find out right now. I'm so excited for this. And this is just the first episode of a full season of guests that are doing non-traditional or unconventional roles in social work, that they have taken their skills, used them and adapted them, and been creative in how they do their jobs. They are doing, you know, a lot of macro work that we don't hear a lot about in grad school, especially if you had a clinical focus. But there's so, so many ways that you can use your social work skills. I hope that this season Gives you some ideas, gives you some inspiration, ignites that passion for you, and really reiterates that you have some really, really amazing marketable skills if you have a social work degree. You are not just stuck in a job that you don't like, that doesn't fit you, that doesn't light you up, that doesn't ignite your passion, that isn't made for you. I genuinely believe that we are all made for a purpose, and you may not know what your purpose is, but you can start with what is it that's calling to you? What is that little idea that you've always thought about? I'm like, oh, you know, that would be really cool to learn more about, or I really admire people who are doing, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. That is a good place to start. So if there is an idea, if there is a spark in your heart to do something different, just do it. Start doing it. Do something today that will get you closer to that goal, to your life's purpose, and your life's mission. I know you can do it, and this season is going to be chock full of social workers who are not doing the conventional therapy work, or if they are, they're owning their own business or they're doing a side hustle, they're doing something else that keeps them ignited and keeps them passionate. So I'm so excited that you're here. I hope you are too. If you love Social Workers Rise, the podcast, please, you know, share this on your social media, take a screenshot of the episode, share it in your stories, share Social Workers Rise share our guests. Sometimes they're on Instagram. So make sure to tag them too. And we just love having you here. I really, really appreciate your time. And I'm done. I'm done rambling. So let's get in with it. And let's hop right into episode one. Hi, Hi, Catherine. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you?
1: Good. Thank you for asking.
0: Yes, of course. So I am so excited to have this conversation with you and um, yeah, I'm ready to just hop right in. So can you tell tell me and the listeners a little bit about you and what you do?
1: Sure. So my name is Samantha Fletcher and I am the executive director of the New York State chapter of NASW. And I've been in this position for a year. I just had my year anniversary last week. And um, we've been doing a lot to kind of uh, to cater more to members and also a lot to a lot of work with the profession at the chapter in the last year. Um, And uh, I'll give you a little of my background. I... um, I have an MSW and a PhD. I got both of those from SUNY Albany and my area, my primary area of research is social change and social activism.
0: I love that because it's not the traditional, you know, therapy route that a lot of times we hear about, you know, in school. Um, I just love that it's the the advocacy and really inspiring big, massive
1: scale change. I just love that. Thank you. I did too. I really enjoy that. I I went the clinical route in in my MSW program, but I've never practiced clinically. I've only practiced like macro practice, social work. So it's kind of interesting. I have the training, the clinical training, but I've, I only do macro and I'm very interested in how we make change. Like what are the steps? Like what can we actually do to create change?
0: Yes. Yes. And I love that because that's what we need right now. We need change. There's so many things that are just not working and, I I love what you guys are all about on Instagram. That's how I actually found you and how I got connected because I was just t- like all of the things that you guys are talking about on social media as far as the anti-racism initiative and doing the work and you're holding town halls, you're doing all these things. And I went to a couple of the virtual events and just my mind was blown. I learned so much. So just I thank you for all of the work that you're doing and you really, I can tell that you're being responsive to the larger, the larger cries of social workers saying like this race or this, you know, the black lives matters movement has brought a shining this light on all of this racism, even within our field of social work. And I love that you don't shy away from the hard conversations you lean into them and you're here, you're showing up, you're here. And I thank you so, so much because that is not an easy thing to do.
1: Well, thank you for all your kind words. And yes, I've been doing um, racial justice work for years and I'm a big believer. We can't change what we don't acknowledge. And as social workers, we have to clean our own house first. Like, and we are such a great profession to do that because it's part of our values. It's part of our code of ethics is, I mean, everything we're doing with our racial justice work fits in perfectly with with our, our core values. So like, I feel like very strongly, we may not be able to control some other systems and structures right now. But the one thing we can control is ourselves and like how we change the profession and the steps that we take.
0: Yes. Yes. So what does it mean? You know, I hear everywhere like do the work, you know, don't, don't be racist, do the work for those people who are, are not black, not identify as BIPOC you know, what does it mean to, to do the work? Like what, what do people like myself need to do to be
1: more, more anti-racist? That is a great question. So, um, I always tell my identities first to explain. So I identify as Native American. I belong to, uh, the Cherokee tribe. Uh, However, and I always say this, I have full white privilege. So no one looks at me and says, wow, look at that Native girl. That just doesn't right. happen. So I I, I receive all the benefits of white privilege. And the reason I frame it like that is because it doesn't matter how I identify. What matters is how society sees me. And they see me as a white person. And so as a white person, someone who has white privilege, doing the work means a couple different things. The first thing it means is self-reflection. And um, we have one of our initiatives kind of, it, it covers this. It's totally geared towards self-reflection and like modeling how to have difficult conversations because unless we, acknowledge the ways that we benefit from our skin color and the ways that other people are oppressed by their skin color. We can't start to make change. So you have to really start to look at, I call it, I, I, I call it developing your third eye and your third ear. And I actually got that from, there's a social activist who has a show on uh, Sirius uh, on the Urban Network, uh, Joe Madison. And he always refers to de- developing your third eye and your third ear. And essentially what that means is anytime you're taking in information, whether it be from news, whether it be from out in society, whether it be from, you know, watching television shows or I- anywhere you're at, essentially, it's looking at what's beyond the surface. So if you're reading articles for your your program and you're in a social work program, it's who's included in those articles and who's excluded and how are people represented? So it's essentially, essentially, um, assessing everything in your life. And once you start to do that, the areas of privilege and oppression become very clear Um, it's structural and systemic and it's also personal. So a lot of people will talk about the police and police brutality because we see that with cameras, with people filming things, we end up seeing when that plays out, when people are killed or when they're injured, we see that, but it happens in all the other systems and structures as well, like school systems, uh, medical systems, the labor market, everything. So it's really developing your self-reflection and then also developing that third eye and third ear. And the other thing that you can do to do the work is to support Bipoc people, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color, in their work. So we are socialized to sit underneath white people, like white people in charge. I think like over ninety percent. I think it's over ninety-five percent of CEOs are white, and they're usually men. So we've been socialized that that's who we listen to. Those are the bosses. That's that's who leads different things. Well, in social work, we can start to change that, and um, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about some of our initiatives that we're doing through the chapter, Uh, but one of the initiatives initiatives that we are working on is led by BIPOC social workers, and we always tell white people, if you want to be an ally, this is a perfect way to be an ally is to, to work behind these BIPOC social workers and to really think about the thoughts that go through your head. And, and you do the same thing out in the real world. Like if you do have a manager or supervisor who's BIPOC, what kinds of thoughts do you have when you're working, working with that person? Do you question their judgment? Do you think about them differently? Do you react to them differently than you have like white bosses that you've had? So those sorts of things, it's, it starts with self-reflection. It's then it's really assessing your community, assessing everything you do. And then, you know, actively working behind BIPOC activists, BIPOC social workers, and supporting them and the work they're doing.
0: I, yes, I love that. And, and I agree. I mean, I, I identify as BIPOC because I'm, you know, half Hispanic, half white. But I do, like you said, ha- get the white, uh, white privilege and the white benefits uh, to the point where I, you know, even though my daughter is mixed, she's half black, there are things that I'm learning every single day about how to be a better person and how to think differently because where I live is predominantly white. So she is the darkest child in her class and she is three. So sending her to school and being surrounded by, by children who look differently than her is our going to be our new normal. And it's, it's new for me. I'm still learning all these things. And, and I was talking with my husband who's black and he, he was, him and I were talking about, you know, pizza day at our school. And it was an extra $6 for the pizza day. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, like, do you think we should do it? You, think, you know, whatever, just talking about it. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I don't want her to miss out on any of these events. And I said, oh, yes, you know, I completely understand because with the pandemic, there's a lot of things that we're already not going to be able to do. So, so it's a good idea to, to sign her up for the things that she can do and participate in. And, and he like blew my mind. He's like, yeah, well, there's that. And there's also the fact that she's the only black kid in her class. And I don't want the other kids to think that she can't afford it. And I was like, what? I did. I, it did not even cross my mind that that is going to be a concern. And that is going to be a, a stereotype that, that she can't afford to participate in these extra events. And he was telling me, cause he grew up here in the same city that when he was going to school they would always ask him oh is your dad around do you have your dad or did he leave you and he he was always, always like always like offended by that because he his dad is amazing and and his parents are married and just these little things that he had to deal with and that my daughter will likely face growing up in this community that i have to become more aware of and and just think differently.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you're talking about microaggressions and macroaggressions that happen every day. I, I also have uh, kids of color, mine are older, they're 2019 and my daughter's 17. And I also have a biracial daughter. And one of the things that I had to teach her very early is that people feel very free to touch her hair and to touch her body. And, so, like, I had to teach her, you know, at a very young age that people do not have a right to put their hands on you. And it's it's really sad that we have to teach that to our kids. So, there's a part of you that mourns, like, having to teach uh, black and brown kids how to navigate the world. But it's it's for their safety and for their, their well-being. And at 17, she's had, you know, I can't tell you how many people who have felt free to put their hands on her, her hair and her body. And then also just the safety talks that we have to have with our kids that start very young about how they interact with police, how they interact in businesses. I can remember when my kids were little, like your kid's age, I I just told, you know, I remember telling them that you don't get to look with your hands. When we go in the store, you have to look with your eyes that, you know, you do, because kind of what your husband was talking about they blame their behavior on the whole race and not just that this is a three or four year old little kid, you know, who's mm-hmm. exploring their own environment. Like it. And I know the other mothers in my, in my group and my friend group, we talk about the age when all of a sudden they're not kids anymore and they get treated like adults. And like research tells us that's much younger for black and Brown kids than it is for white kids. They become adultified, like at a much younger age.
0: Yeah, that is terrifying to think of, well, to think of my daughter as a 13 year old, but treated as, as an adult and yeah, people might be intimidated by her or scared. And, and I wonder, I mean, there's, there's a fine line because I feel like on one hand, she does need to be assertive because People have already, other children, they come up and touch her hair and people, you know, adults just like, no. So she knows already to say, no, don't touch my hair. (laughs) And so it's like, there's, and, but then it's like, you have to balance. There's the assertiveness, but then there's, is she going to be an angry black woman? And are, is she friendly? Can we talk with her?
1: And there's just no winning. There's just no winning. Well, and that's privilege. So like white people have the privilege of showing their emotions and black people don't. Mm. So, you know, black, a black woman could say the exact same thing I'm saying, and they'll be labeled as the angry black woman. But because I have white privilege, I'm just expressing, expressing an emotion. So that's part of that privilege is like mm. not being able to express that emotion and um i mean that i think part of the way you combat that is you have to we talk about race every day in our house because it's it's a part of you know our family's existence in this world is is race and it's important to talk about so it's really teaching them how to externalize those micro and macro aggressions so that they're not internalizing that and not thinking that they're the problem like it's okay to be angry if someone thinks they have the right to put their hands on your body like that's okay. Like you get to be angry about that because it's not okay to just walk up and, and touch people. And that's one of the things I've always modeled for my kids starting when they're little. If, if someone would walk up and touch any of my kids here, I'd be like, excuse me. You don't get to come up and touch, you know, touch people's bodies, their bodies belong to them. If you would like to touch their hair, you can ask them if you can touch their hair, but they're probably going to tell you no, because that's invasive. (laughs) You know, like, so Mm -hmm. I would kind of give them those words to use and like model those conversations for them. Like, you know, when they were really young, and didn't quite have those words. And then it also teaches the person who's doing that, that they're crossing, you know, that they've crossed a line hmm.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: That's so true. And I, I love
0: the way that you just so succinctly, you know, summarize everything that I was talking about. So it's good to have words for these things that are happening and to be able to identify, you know, what is going on and, and what's happening. So um, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so okay, just to recap. So what we mean by doing the work, it's a self-reflection. How do we benefit from our own skin color? And we really need to work on developing our third eye and our third ear, you know, what is beyond the surface? Who is included or excluded from from whatever's going on in our world? And, and then how are these people represented? Um, and then And then also to the last one, like the three steps essentially is support uh, BIPOC work and really, again, self-reflect on how you feel about having a BIPOC supervisor or social worker or someone who is in a leadership
1: position. Yes. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) Okay,
0: good. I I have to take notes. (laughs) I didn't want to miss anything. So then you mentioned a lot of the anti-racism work that you're doing over there at New York state and the anti-racism initiative.
1: What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? Okay. That's a good question. So, like I said, I've been involved in the work for a really long time and I came into NASW exactly a year ago. And really the first several months was um, kind of restructuring the chapter and Uh, building a really strong foundation so that we could support different initiatives. So uh, when George Floyd happened, first of all, a lot of people who've been doing this work for years, when George Floyd happened, we were all kind of looking at each other as like, why are they responding to this? Like, I mean, because we've been through this so many times, like there's so many people who came before George Floyd that were like, why is this one making a difference? And there's lots of theories around that. So, I mean, I know that was the way I was thinking for like a week, um, and then I was like, it doesn't matter. So, one thing I I always talk, you know, with um, some of the younger social workers I work with is that the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, this this movement has been around for hundreds of years. This movement started, you know, back when when a group of people were enslaved, and So the work's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it has different names. So, you know, it was the civil rights movement for a long time, and then Black Lives Matter is just an extension of the civil rights uh, movement that, that came into being around 2013. So this is a moment within the movement. So the movement will continue. Um, but we don't know how long the moment will stay because it's it's a little like the window has opened. So you get as much work as you can do during that that window, and then we all know the window will close where people aren't as open to hearing things, and people aren't as, you know, available like to learn these different things. But we continue the work no matter if it's a moment or not. So the work continues. So this was just a perfect time to embed. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the civil rights movement into our chapter at the New York State chapter. So it wasn't a response to George Floyd. It was more like, now's the time to embed the work and the work will continue um, no matter what is going on in the news cycle, so to speak. So what we did is we built six initiatives um, that cover a widespread, you know, a widespread of things for people to engage in the work in because. People are at all different levels of this work. So you have some people who they saw the George Floyd video. And for the first time, they're like, oh, my gosh, this is really bad. Like racism exists. I didn't realize that before. So people who literally just stepped into the movement, And then you have people who've been doing the movement their whole lives. So it's like this wide, you know, range of people and their experiences and where they're at. So we were very conscious of that when we developed these initiatives. So one of them is we, we have a web, uh, we have a web page. So our website is naswnys.org. And when you go on our website, the first banner that comes up is Black Lives Matter, and you click on that, and that brings you to all our initiatives. So one of them is our resources. So you'd click on the resources tab, and we're just gathering resources for people. So we've arranged it in... um, like different categories like race and children you know race and school different things like that so you can click on any of those and we'll have articles we'll have um you know it it may be like a youtube video different things for you to look so that's our resources we keep adding to that it's by no means extensive but it's a start um then we have um, i'm starting kind of with our our ones that aren't as developed we have our creative expressions which is set to start, this is gonna start in the next, um, probably in the next month. And really what this is, is open mic. So this is just an opportunity. If you've ever been to an open mic event, they're extremely powerful. So like poetry, spoken word, we might be able to get some step in even though it's gonna be virtual. Um, And really, open mics are healing for the community, and they can also be educational for people not in the community, like in the BIPOC communities. Um, So that's the only one we haven't actively started, but we do have someone who's working on it right now. Then we have Take Action. So Take Action is led by our policy coordinator at the chapter, Evelyn Williams. Evelyn has, like, about 40 years experience in policy work. She's phenomenal. And she's essentially when we are building this, these initiatives, she, she called me and she's like, people want to act. That's what they want to do. I'm like, great. What do you want to do with that? So she created this, the, the take action. Sometimes we call it act now group. And she has started this. We've had three sessions. We, Very unfortunately didn't record the first one because we had just gotten zoom and we didn't know how to record, but the second and third sessions are were both recorded and Anyone can go in and listen to, um, they can go in and listen to it and kind of get filled in. She started with history. So the first two sessions were really about the history of racism in the United States. And then the third session that she did a couple of weeks ago was on white privilege. And then her next session, which is on Monday, September 21st is gonna be where we start work groups. So she's putting together work groups to really look at how we change policies. And we're looking at different systems. So like if you're a school social worker and you're like, hey, I want to look at changing policy in schools, then there'll be a work group for that. There might be a work group that looks at the criminal justice system. So that's her initiative that she's looking at. You can go in, look at that, listen to her recordings, and then sign up for the next one. I think it's really important I tell you that all of this is free and open to everyone because the most important thing is change. So we have people from all over the United States that join these initiatives, um, and they're welcome. You don't have to be a member. You can just come and help do the work. then we have our forums on our website is referred to as self-reflection and training. So this is the only thing we don't take. Um, and this is set up, we modeled this after the work that I did with my partner, Don Knight Thomas in the racial justice work that we were doing. And what it is, is we break people into small groups and each small group is co-facilitated. So there's someone with white privilege and then there's a BIPOC facilitator, and the facilitators just guide discussion. So we just had one on Thursday, and our topic was white privilege. So uh, we developed questions. Um, the The co facilitators we've all been working together for a while now. So as a group, we de- we develop the questions, and then each group, you know, dives into the questions. All of this is mixed race. Um, And uh, then people just start answering the questions and we encourage everyone to be active in the conversation. If someone's overly active, we encourage them to step back and let other people speak. If people are shy, we encourage them to speak. And it's really creating this safe space to be able to say whatever you need to say. So like, you know, we've had people who they're like, this is the first time I've ever talked about race. You know, I don't want to be offensive. Can I ask this question? The answer is yes. We want you asking the questions because it's a, this is it's we call it a brave space. So it's a, a space to be brave and sit in the discomfort of these conversations. And we purposely do not record them because we want it to be a safe space. No one's recording what you're saying. It's a it's a time to really work on yourself, your self reflections and develop that skill to sit in uncomfortable conversations for a long period of time. So uh, that's under the self-reflections and training. Um, I just emailed the co-facilitators today to set up our October meeting. So we'll be advertising that soon. Again, free, open to everyone. Then we have our continuing education. This is the only thing that there is a fee um, that there's a fee with. So after we created the initiatives, any anti-racist, racist uh, programming that we put up is free to our New York state members. Um, Other chapter members and non-members there is a fee for. And then we had a couple of trainings that we had scheduled before we set this up. So there's a fee for everyone just because we'd already scheduled it that way. Um, But I did promise that we would have three of these that would be free for everyone. And our first one that's free for everyone is November 16th. And it's practicing culturally competent social work in school settings. So November 16th, on our website, it says that non-members have to pay, but that's not true, it's free for everyone. Um, so that's the only thing that has a cost associated with our continuing ed, and that's just primarily because we, we are a business, and we, we pay our presenters, and there's a business side to that. Then our last initiative, we refer to as revolutionizing the profession. And so this really came out of a discussion that we had with one of our board members. Uh, She's actually our MSW student board member. Her name's Notion Hawk, and she's extremely active in the chapter. She runs one of our committees, and she was really disturbed by some of the things that she was seeing. And so we had a meeting, and through this meeting, we came up with this idea of, you know what we do have control over? We have control over the profession and we can change the profession of social work. And we developed this really a path to do that through initially starting with town halls. Um, So our first town hall uh, was I don't even remember when it was, I think it was a couple of months ago. The um, recordings are all on our website and I really encourage you to listen to the recordings. That first town hall was extremely powerful. And we decided the first town hall would be just to acknowledge the history of racism within social work, and then also existing racism within the profession. So we started with the history piece and then it moved into giving the floor to BIPOC social workers who talked for over, well, almost two hours about their experiences in schools of social work and in practice. And it was an extremely um, like supportive environment, and it just set up the whole series. Then we had our next town hall, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, and That For that one, we set goals on how to make the New York State chapter of NASW racially equitable. So that's kind of purpose of the town halls here going, like now going out for the next several months is to set goals. So now we have specific goals for the New York State chapter. um, And then in the following town halls, we're going to be setting uh, goals for schools of social work for micro practice and for macro practice. Once we have all those goals set, so the way I think about goals is if the, if the profession was racially equitable, what would it look like? Those things become goals. So things like pay equity, representation um, in the workforce, uh, you know, who gets hired, like all, all of those things become the goals once we have the goals then we're going to break up into work groups and the work groups will, will develop actionable steps to meet those goals and then we plan to disseminate those all that information out to the stakeholders. So like when we do the goals and the action steps for schools of social work, we'll ask to have a meeting with them and we'll present it to them and work with them. You know, when we do it with uh like macro practice and clinical practice, any organization that hires a lot of social workers will ask to meet with them, we'll present it, present everything. This is going to be a couple of years to do this. All the town halls and all the work groups will be led or co-led by co-led with another, not Not with a white person, everyone will be a BIPOC social worker. But this is a great place for uh, white social workers to to step in as allies and help do some of the work that it's going to take on these work groups to to create these papers to disseminate. Um, So that is our last initiative. And our next town hall is scheduled for September 29th. And I'm meeting, we have a, a group of primarily Black women right now who they're kind of, they they volunteered to co-facilitate these town halls, and they definitely want to be involved in the work groups. So we're going to kind of map out the rest of the year, our schedule, and what each town hall will be focused on. Um, so that is our our Black Lives uh, Matter initiatives.
0: Wow, that is
1: a lot going on. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs>
0: yes, but it's all so necessary and. And I do feel like it's very comprehensive, which is, which is what we needed. Because when I, for me personally, when I think of, you know, overcoming racism, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. Like, where do we even start? And so I love how you just broke it down into, you know, six really big different areas that people could get involved with. I feel like there is a place for somebody everywhere in <laughs> one of these things, you know, if you're more creative, you have the open mic. If you are more, you know, want to sit down and learn there's the town halls. And I'm really excited for the next town hall on September, 29th. I'm going to put that on my calendar, make sure I can go. Cause I went to one, it was a forum. I believe I went to the forum that was, that was recent. And I just learned so much just listening to other people. I had no idea of the experiences that people had in the social work profession, even, you know, to the point where they said multiple people have agreed that it was traumatizing for them
1: to, Oh yeah, to,
0: to go through social work school, like education. And oh my gosh, my heart just broke just, you know, hearing their stories and things that. I'm looking back now, I'm like, oh, I can see how, yes, you know, yes, I can see how they could feel that way. And, um, and, and just honoring that, that, like, oh, geez, and again, doing that self reflection with me, like, is there ways that I could change? Is there ways that I can be better?
1: Yeah. And you said something really important that I've heard a lot in doing this work is it's so big. Where do we start? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very common question because it's the, the country was founded on racism. And that's something we have to talk about. I'm Native. So like that, that's a very you know, we talk about that a lot in tribal settings about, you know, what happened to Native populations, what happened to Black populations, um, with how the country was founded. So, of course, if you look at how our country was founded, of course, racism is embedded in every part of society. Of course it is. It's how we were founded. And we, you know, we have to start to open our eyes and ears and start to see that. And one of the things I, because people get really overwhelmed and they're like, I'm one person, what could I possibly do? well the first thing that any person can do is that self reflection work and really look at you know ways that you've benefited from different you know different systems and different structures and one of you know i sometimes i'll give the example that i'm a woman and as a woman you know i have faced some oppressions like through sexism i always say it's literally nothing compared to what my children have faced as people of color because theirs is just constant and it's every day like what goes on with them um and that's i can't say that's the case with the sexism i will say that the older women i've talked to you know talked to they you know they did face sexism very heavy sexism you know when they were younger and they were new workers and it was very strong i i haven't faced it as strong as they have but one thing you can control is your own group and oftentimes that's the hardest (laughs) the hardest Mm -hmm. people to talk to are your friends and family um because they they know you and they know you know they know how to get you to quit talking and all of that but you know we used to do when i was at the university we used to do like sessions right before people would go home for thanksgiving or you know the december january holidays um, and we would talk to them about how you have conversations, but still maintain relationships and that, you know, you can show people a different perspective. And then we would have sessions as soon as they came back to debrief about those sessions and how it went and like, you know, kind of talking about how things could have gone better, how, you know, what they could say next time, that type of stuff. So you, And then you also have out in society, like if you start to look like once we get back to society after covid but racism happens all the time in your own environment like you know i've been in stores where employee you know employees are following black people in the store and you know i've been in stores where the you know the person in front of me gets questioned about their credit card and you know as someone with white privilege i've spoken up in those situations and i'll say well you didn't ask the person in front of that person if their credit card was stolen, are you asking her because she's black, you know, I'll just kind of call it out, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and they, they kind of stumble and they get, you know, but like, it's just kind of calling out what you're seeing. And so you learn to do that. Those are skills you pick up and that you learn, but yeah, anyone can make a difference in your own environment in your own community.
0: Yes. I love that. And it does take, um, it takes people getting uncomfortable you know cuz you will be making people uncomfortable and a lot of times as social workers we like to keep the peace we're peacemakers we don't like to start arguments but this is something that must be done it's not a luxury it must be done because if and it's part of your your ethics as a social worker to call out this bs i mean it cannot continue and it's you know i feel like you're not you know you're almost being a poser if you're just kind of saying like well you know these injustices happen but I'm not going to say anything it's not my place uh you know you are in a we're in a unique position to to do something and to make change and to speak up and to advocate for those who who can't advocate advocate for themselves or who are tired they just need some backup Yes.
1: Yeah. And it's, and also it, it kind of provides that it's using your privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So like when I, when I work with activists, they don't need me to talk, they mean me to do the work. You know? mm-hmm. They're like, hey, we need, you know, we need copies of this, we need to get space, you know, then I'm doing the work. But you know, if I'm out in a public situation, that's humiliating. You're purposely trying to humiliate someone. And, you know, then that's somewhere where you know, I can speak up. And as a social worker, I can do it in a way that if, you know, the, the cashier or whatever is like, oh, you know, oh, you know as a social worker, I could be like, well, you know, I just want to let you know that's what it looks like from my perspective
0: because mm-hmm. you're
1: singling out this person and I mean I don't, I don't know what else to think it could be because she's just getting her groceries just like everyone else in line you know like right you could kind of have and then you're modeling for other people how to also have those conversations
0: mm-hmm. yes yes I love that so I'm um, you know kind of switching gears here a little bit I know that you are you know you have a leadership position with NASW You guys are doing some amazing work in New York state and all of the chapters are, you know, operating independently. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, why, why would it be important or what would be the benefit or why should social workers join
1: NASW? That's a really good question. So when I came into this position, I asked myself that same question. Why should people join? So a lot of the work I that I was doing, and we, me and the staff and the board of directors were doing over the last year, was really building a chapter that we could, we could answer that question easily. Like, why should you join? So, um, like, one of the first things we did is we made sure that uh, we created continuing education. So, our New York State members we guarantee that they are able to get all of their continuing education for free through their membership. So we offer at least one free training a month. And for New York State, they have to get 36 uh, CE hours every three years. So we usually, I think so far in 2020, we've offered close to 60 free continuing ed hours for our members. So that was kind of like that first step is like, there's got to be a tangible benefit. If I'm going to pay the 236, what do I get? Um, So that was one of the first things that we did. Now, every chapter is different. So you have to check with each chapter to see what their member benefits are. And then the other thing we did is, again, I I told you, I did, you know, I did a five-year study on how do you create social change. And one of the biggest findings from my study is that grassroots activism from people who are boots on the ground is one of the most effective things you can do. So I wanted to put the power of our advocacy in the hands of members. And we've done that. So we have a policy coordinator who's phenomenal, so they get her expertise, but the members make the decisions. So we have an advocacy and government relations committee that, that sets our legislative agenda. So it, it, that all comes from the members, and then the staff supports the members in what they choose. So we have some people that that's why they join, is because they want to set the chapter's le- legislative agenda. Then we have, like, we have a private practice connect uh, lister for our private practitioners. So, like, with telehealth and everything that's going on with COVID, that resource has been unbelievably helpful with, you know, people passing back and forth information. We, you know, we just did an advocacy campaign where the members could advocate for an extension of an executive order for to cover telehealth for mental health services so they were able to engage in that so that's the you know that's one of our member benefits and then uh, uh, we have several committees that's one thing to serve on our committees you do have to be a member and the committees drive the chapter the committees and the board of directors so everything we do is member driven so if you don't like something or you don't like how we're handling something join and be part of that change so, I would say that's those are reasons why members can join. I will say that we haven't been as strong with like students and recent grads, so we're focusing on that now. If you're a student or you're, or you're a recent graduate, why should you join? Now we're building up that to create to create initiatives and to create programs that would be beneficial to that group of social workers. Um, so yes, that's that's my answer is that i I feel like at New York State that we've created all these initiatives that I can now say yes, you should join, and here's why.
0: Yes, that's definitely something to be proud of. And I know that each, you know, each uh, chapter is gonna be a little bit different. So if people feel like there is a need in their area because we're nationwide, you know, worldwide with the podcast, but nationwide specifically, how can social workers approach their own local chapters to start this conversation, to get involved, to kind of
1: see, you know, to start this change, you know, do you have any tips for that? Yes. So each chapter has an executive director. Now some of the chapters are smaller. So that executive director may be the only staff person for the chapter. And when that's the case, They really don't have the resources to do some of the larger initiatives we're doing in New York state, because we do have staff that helps carry, you know, that helps carry some of these initiatives. Um, So I always say there's two different kind of governing bodies. You have the board of directors. So each chapter should have a board of directors, and then they should have the chapter staff. So I recommend reaching out to your chapter staff, like going on the website, emailing them. And letting them know, hey, I'm interested in getting involved with the chapter. Here's what I'm interested in. And it really depends. So we have an active board and an active staff. We work very closely together so but sometimes you know the board may take more you know more of a leadership role especially if there's only one staff member so if you reach out to the staff they'll kind of let you know like oh okay we have a committee for this you know reach out to the chair of the committee or oh reach out to our president of the board they can walk you through this so i would start with that the the staff like emailing the staff of the chapter and introduce yourself Let them know you're interested and what you're interested in doing.
0: Okay, awesome. That definitely sounds doable. So thank you so much, Sam. Where can people find you, learn more about, uh, you know, the work that you're doing and get in contact with you?
1: So the best place is to go to our website, um, which is naswnys.org. And we that's one of the things we've been working on over the last year is cleaning up our website. So we have a a lot of things on here that are up to date and ready to go. So again, when you first log on, that first banner is going to be Black Lives Matter. It says We Stand With You. If you click on that, you'll get to all those initiatives. If you're looking for information on the staff or our board of directors, that's going to be under our About Uh, tab and there's a staff tab that has my email and our other staff members and all of our interns and then we have leadership and government with our board of directors on there as well so I'd say that's the best place to find us
0: awesome thank you so much Sam it was a pleasure and I'm really excited for what you guys have coming up in the future and you know just learning learning more
1: as we go every day Thank you so much, Catherine. I've really enjoyed this. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of social workers rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.